You're listening to Global Lab from the Bartlett Centre for Advanced Spatial Analysis at UCL. You might reasonably assume from the title that the Global Lab encompasses the whole world and everyone within it, uh, but at the Global Lab studios, nevertheless, we have started to feel a little bit cooped up. Uh, and so for this episode, we have gone out into the field for some fresh air. Um, for scientists and academics and researchers, being in the field brings a certain kind of credibility. To paraphrase sociologist Thomas Gearin, this is where scientists can find unique windows on the universe, revealing only within these places something that cannot be replicated in the laboratory. But of course, being in the field also brings with it the messiness of real life. Later in the episode, we'll hear from Anna Plejajski about how cutting-edge technology fares when it gets into the field. Uh, we're going to hear from Matt Pennells about how the charity Map Action is using geographic information systems in the field. But before we get to that, we're going to hear from Daniel Raven Ellison, who's going to tell us why we are always in the field, even when we're in the comfort of our own homes. My name is Daniel Raven Ellison. I'm a guerrilla geographer, a National Geographic Emerging Explorer, and I'm currently leading an initiative to turn the whole of Greater London into the world's first national park city. Uh, so you were so there's a lot to unpack there. So you were you were guerrilla geographer and an, was that, was that a national uh... national geographic emerging explorer. Well, I think I just carry on emerging forever. I never know quite when I'll sort of get to the next level. So you were like a you were, you were an explorer, like it was sort of a pith, pith helmet type uh, explorer. That's exactly the kind of explorer that I do not want to be like. Right, okay. I, I'm I'm not one of those people who thinks that the, it's only worth visiting somewhere if no one's ever been there before. It has to be a virgin landscape where it's only worth going somewhere if it's the highest mountain or the deepest cave and so the kind of places you're not you're interested in aren't these undiscovered caves they're I oh, know those are interesting too but when people think about exploration they they automatically start thinking of these sort of masochistic adventurers who like to hurt themselves in horrific circumstances <laughs> right whereas what I'm saying is that whether you're going on the tube and you're a bit irritated by someone doing their toenail clippings next door to you yeah and you're sort of exploring that experience or whether you just really like being at home in bed tickling your cat's tummy, those are all valid explorations. I was a geography teacher for over seven years and the big challenge I would have, the frustration I'd have is that when you're a science teacher, kids get that you make explosions but you can't make them as big as you can do in the real world yeah. because you just play with phosphorus, for example. Yeah. And with history, you get the deal. You can't go back to Roman times, you've got to imagine it. Yeah, yeah. With geography, on the other hand, like it's a constant frustration that the exploration, all the opportunities just outside the window, right. but you're chained to your desk you know, let's go out. So I'm interested in finding ways to help people to explore creatively when they can, yeah. but also how to bring those places into the classroom. But what I would do is take a map of an urban area, um, look at the distribution of deprivation within the urban area, and then plot a walk, which represents the size of the urban footprint, but also then takes a route that follows the distribution of deprivation. So for example, if the um, most deprived um, fifth of a, um, of a city occupy just 5% of the urban area, mm. then only 5% of my walk would go through that kind of place. I see. So rather than it being that a guidebook or a, a guide or my prejudice tells me how mm. to navigate through a city, actually the social or the cultural landscape through mapping determines where I go or where I don't go. So it's almost like a data-driven walk where you're getting a representative sample of the city, is that it? Definitely. I mean, if you go on a, if you take an ordnance survey map where you've got um, contours and highest shape of land, that's a data-driven walk where you're making yeah, a formed sure. judgment where you go, but I'm just using a cultural or a social or an economic landscape yep. rather than a purely physical one. Absolutely. Yeah. So I've gone on a depressing walk or an unhealthy walk. So how does that affect you as a, as a sort of a, a, a walker? Like, do you feel more 
depressed going on a depressing walk as opposed to going on a, I don't know, an affluent walk or a shopping walk or something like that? It's a provocation. It depends on what you're looking at. Um, what's interesting is that for me, when I take photographs, in some of the ways I do this, is I'll always photograph looking forward where I'm going. Right. And what's interesting there is the sense of loss that I will sometimes feel and almost like a period of mourning of where I'm not photographing the objects and things that I'm prejudicially wanting to photograph that are down an alleyway to my right or left. I almost have this mm. emotional radar going off. But the, the interesting about doing a, a depressing walk, so working with Peter at City Farmers, who does these brilliant maps of London, he created a fantastic map of London with the places where most antidepressant drugs are consumed, looking right. very bruised. And walking through those areas, it's interesting how a lot of the green space mm. in parts of East London is actually blocked off. And then you can see three locks on doors. Three locks on doors is quite unusual for London. Mm. And then even more so, stuff like either barbed wire or glass on the top of walls and things. So then there's a question, to what degree is that a depressing landscape? Because the people are depressed or because the landscape is depressed. What's the relationship between those two things? Cause and effect, yeah. Yeah. So you've actually constructed these walks to confront and interpret the city in a really different way. And then your latest project does that in a sort of scale of the whole city rather than an individual work. We'd like to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so uh, last year I completed this journey where I visited all 15 of the UK's national parks with my son. And during that journey I began to wonder why it was that considering that 7% of the United Kingdom and 10% of England is urban habitat and recognised and celebrated as urban habitat by natural England and often recognised for being arguably more ecologically valuable than some rural places. We could unpack that a little bit. Um, But certainly it could be more um, ecologically biodiverse. Um, Why it was that we didn't have a major urban landscape within the family of national parks. And essentially I've settled that there's no reason not to other than maybe some weird form of prejudice against urban people and urban wildlife. And so um, I'm currently leading an initiative to turn the whole of Greater London into the world's first national park city which would be a new kind of national park. It wouldn't involve any new layers of planning or legislation. It would sit outside the current family of national parks in terms of legal status, but it would share very, very similar aims and purposes. So we'd understand that London stood for something very different. We'd understand that its aims were around um, enhancing natural heritage and promoting how people can enjoy and understand the park and how they can enhance the natural heritage that's there, but in a way that would be appropriate for an urban context. There's so much in there to unpack. So to, so to, <laughs> so to start off with, there are people. There are, um, so you said natural England think that certain urban areas have more ecological value and divide by. Oh, well, just just imagine areas. the countryside. Imagine a field in the countryside. Yeah. I can imagine fields in the countryside where there's one crop. Yeah. The animals are killed, and the one place where you may see like a, an island of biodiversity is ironically at the foot of a pylon where the combine harvester can't get to. Right. And yeah. I've been places before where there's stinging nettles and butterflies and one deer sheltering behind the pylon. Yeah. It's yeah. not true that just because you're remote and rural that somehow there's more wildlife. And the, the classic example of that in city is, is bees. Right. Yeah. So, what's the, so t- t- tell me more about that. Well, in the sense that there's both a, di- a greater diversity and greater quantity of bees in, in cities like London than in large tracts of countryside, because there's a greater diversity of uh, plants that they can access, um, and because there isn't pesticides and things going out to kill them. Right, okay. So bees thrive in cities. 
So it's interesting, isn't it? It was almost you were talking about the sort of mechanisms of control in our, controlling our environment. We think about urban environments as being very controlled, very under human control. But as you say, an agricultural environment that's very exquisitely controlled so that a crop can flourish and all of those you know, biological entities which might nibble away at it. And everyone always goes on about how great hedgerows are for wildlife in the countryside. Mm. What they're really saying is that the fields are really crap. <laughs> yeah. And if you think about a, a typical mix mash of terrace house gardens going through the back of a city like London, Manchester, Glasgow, yeah. lots of hedges, you know, lots of trees, lots of different plants going on, and actually far more because of all the new species that have been invited into cities, um, actually far more species than you'd get just natively within Britain as well. So tell me a little bit more about the concept of a national park. What does it mean generally in the UK when a park is uh, an area of land is designated to be a, a, a national park? So national parks have a number of key purposes. And I don't have them written down in front of me, so it's off of my head. Yeah. But the first one um, is to enhance and improve um, natural and cultural heritage. Yeah. To look after natural and cultural heritage. The second <coughs> is to promote people's understanding and enjoyment of those things. Yeah. Um, so sort of almost like a sort of leisure function in some sense that people can go and see. Exactly, but to understand as well, and that's very yeah, the educational uh, book. Yeah. That's very important. We come back to that. Okay. And then finally, there's a there's another purpose which is around the the quality of life and the livability for the communities that live within the park itself. Right. Okay. So national parks globally, like elsewhere in the world on the whole, tend to be more pristine wild environments. That's very problematic Protected ideas from developmental yeah, housing or, or, yeah, or... Exactly, or they've been ethnically cleansed of people, for right. example. In Britain, yeah. it's quite unusual. According to the RUCN standards... What's well, so the RUCN? So the RUCN is the International Conservation Union from the United Nations that, okay. that looks after designating and thinking... Well, not, looking, not designating, but thinking about protected areas and looking after protected areas in the world. Okay. And they have different categories of protected areas. And national parks internationally um, aren't as developed as British national parks. Right. UK national parks are a little bit more populated. So we already have about 400,000 people living across our national parks, okay. um, which is very different to national parks elsewhere in the world. Okay. But nonetheless, so the, the purposes of the national parks... I think are really admirable and when someone crosses the threshold and goes past a sign going into a national park they instantly know that it stands for something different okay it's there to protect wildlife it's there to look after cultural heritage and to make those things stronger but also to help people enjoy those things as well that's a really important component so in i mean i've been to a lot of national parks in the u.s where it really is that sort of inverted commas pristine pristine environment where uh, human activity is limited because there's a feeling that people might might, might spoil it. Mm -hmm. um, now in the UK where that's not the case, what's the difference as a visitor to the National Park? No, but I, I, I just, I, I, even that as, a, as, a, as an idea is mm. problematic. Sure, okay. In the sense that the individual daisy, the individual fox, the mm. ninja pigeon, you know, doesn't know that it's not in a, in a normal, like a, a wild landscape. They are in yes. a wild landscape. When you're in the city, you mean? When they're in the city, yeah. precisely. Yeah, yeah. And so there's this there's, there's the lens, which is the BBC documentary view of the world, which is a pristine environment and there's no people there, there's yeah. nothing else. And that somehow that is more pure, that is more desirable. So what would that look like if, if uh, Greater London becomes a national park? What would, what would change about the way that we interact with, with London, do you think? So um, what we're talking about is an approach where we find ways to unlock London's natural potential for the benefit of Londoners, no matter how many legs they have, um, but also for the quality of the city itself. 
So there's two strands to that. One is, um, how can we help people to learn about how they can benefit more from London's natural environment? Mm. That's one part. And the other part is, how can we help people to learn how to benefit London's natural environment more? Yeah. And there's a reciprocal relationship within that. Mm. The way we're looking at doing that is by creating a partnership. So rather than it being a top-down authority where policymakers say, oh, you must do this, it's more about saying, what are, what's the, what are the range of organisations that are already doing fantastic work in London, and how can we connect people up and incubate ideas and accelerate best practice by showing people best practice, but also helping people to learn about the kinds of things they could do to make the city better. So a really great example is... Um, um, so one in seven London children hasn't been to a green space in the past year with their parents. One in seven. And that has an impact not only on their development, on their health, on the opportunities to learn, but also their value system around protecting green space. Right. Okay. Now, we're not saying that we want to have new planning legislation like you have in rural national parks that says you can't do stuff because yes. that won't be successful and it's not practical in the city. But if people value green space and natural heritage more and green infrastructure more, they're then also more likely to protect it. I'm interested in the idea of idle stewardship. So, um, you know, if you have a garden and you don't look after it, that's fine maybe, but if you plant some wildflowers, then yeah. you'll feel better about yourself, you'll improve um, the resilience of the city, you'll increase the amount of plants and pollinators. And you don't have to mow every week. And you have to mow every week. <laughs> So culturally, actually, a great garden. At the moment, someone might see a scruffy garden and think it's a terrible garden. Mm. But over a 20-year period, a child going to an education system now, where they've been brought up to understand that a scruffy garden that's full of wildflowers is actually a great garden, yeah. is a cultural shift. How do we achieve that? Well, if everyone understands that a national park city mm. is this new kind of place and we've got this common purpose of what we're trying to achieve, which is to make a wilder, more healthy city, mm. then people might understand that a scruffy garden is a great garden. You know, yeah, and that's one example. We could, you know, think of many more. I mean, another really good one is um, so the moment if London is trying to promote itself as a green city to the world, I don't mean green is in great air quality. I mean green is in it's visibly green. Yeah. Then we can say that to investors elsewhere in the world. But same way, the world's first national park city. Yeah. Two hundred and fifty years after the Industrial Revolution, a hundred years after the formation of the National Park Service in the United States, mm. that would be some serious intellectual capital and bargaining chips for businesses and hotels to talk about. And at the moment, the vast majority of visitors and investment comes to central London, yeah. but a lot of the natural assets are in outer London. Right. So I'm interested in how we can inspire more visitors to either stay or visit outer London. So what's gonna happen now is, um, in April, we're gonna have a test model out for people to say what they think of the idea. Then in July, we're gonna be crowdfunding over the next couple of months uh, a, a newspaper proposal that we plan to get to thousands of Londoners explaining what this idea is. And the proposal is to Londoners. Yeah. Because actually, if, if you lead a business, a big business, or whether you lead a council, you're still a citizen of the city. So we wanna persuade Londoners, and through Londoners, we then want to persuade local councils and the GLA to become partners in this endeavor. But we want to have quite a, a flat partnership. Mm. So that people who run small allotments have a voice, yeah, of course. And people who run have garden have a voice, yeah. Rather than it just being that um, you know the mayor or London council is dictating things. That's not what this is about. Mm. Um, so the way in which we're framing this is about what can individual people do themselves to enjoy the city more that will make their lives better, yeah. 
But by doing those things, they then benefit the city as a whole because they're healthier and happier citizens. So if people want to get involved with that or they want to just find out more information um, about the, the whole project, where can they do that? Just Google Greater London National Park <laughs> and our website comes up and all the information is there. But you know what it says is a plea, two things. One is that we've got this crowdfunding coming up and a tenner, 50 quid, a thousand pounds, everything will help. We want to reach a million Londoners is the plan through like the overall social campaign. So it'd be awesome to have your help with that. The other thing is that if we had set up a petition that said protect green space or we said um, no bridges over the Thames, then we'd mm. probably have 100,000 people signing the petition. But I think because we've got like a really positive solution, <laughs> yeah. it's proving really hard to get people just to sign the petition. Right, okay. yeah. um, and, and I don't want to change the petition to be protect green space because the way we want to protect green space is by everyone becoming founders of this world's first national park city. Mm. So please sign the petition too. So if you are interested in the work that Daniel's doing, uh, please do go to his website, uh, greaterlondonnationalpark.org.uk, or you can just Google Greater London National Park, that'll come up. Uh, and pledge your support, sign the petition, uh, and uh, see what you can do to get involved. Next up, Thomas Evans caught up with Matt Pennells, someone who's found himself in the field in less than perfect circumstances more than once with mapping charity Map Action. So Map Action uh, is a UK-based charity, um, and it has a, uh, a mandate really to help in the humanitarian response, often to natural disasters or what we call complex emergencies, where maybe people are displaced from their homes. So that could be uh, fighting or, or natural disasters. Um, so Map Action's uh, core process is to respond very quickly to these things, sometimes via requests from the UN, uh, sometimes just by request by host countries. Uh, and their normal process is to send out two-man teams of, of geographic information experts to a, say, disaster area to help in the initial response and coordination. Um, so that can mean anything from making maps of what roads are open after an earthquake or flooding, um, where helicopters could land, through to where the affected population is. And the main basis is being able to make the senior decision-makers make informed decisions and make uh, you know essential humanitarian aid decisions in a very you know very uh, high data driven way. Okay, um, could you maybe give us some examples of where Map Action has been uh, deployed? Sure. Yeah. So some of the uh, well known ones are things like Haiti uh, and the Boxing Day tsunami. Uh, they were both deployed there. Uh, they've been more recently involved in the Ebola crisis, um, and they're in fact in the field at the moment. Uh, in two locations uh, over in the Pacific following the Cyclone Pam incident and also tomorrow flying out to Chile where there's been some uh, floods uh, in the desert. So uh, again, very rapid response to these things and we fill the gap between that, you know, we often fly out with people like Search and Rescue if it's been an earthquake, so we're on the ground very quickly. Could you maybe talk us through the, the process then? So what happens, there's a disaster somewhere and then what's the process from, from that to map action having people on the ground? Sure, yeah. So uh, most major disasters, uh, we work with the United Nations and most um, commonly their Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, uh, which is UN OCHA in short. Um, they would put a request out following an emergency uh, for a UN Disaster Assessment Committee, which basically is the initial responders to work out how bad a, a natural disaster is. Uh, from that, they have standby partner agreements with people like Map Action, who they then call upon 
to go with them and help in that initial uh, disaster assessment. So in a typical example, if there was, say, an earthquake on, on a Monday, um, people be you know informed by, say, Monday night, and you could have people on planes Tuesday morning heading out to, if not the exact disaster area, as near as they can get until you've got helicopter flights in or something like that. You are often some of the very first people on the ground after a disaster, um, and in some cases in um, cyclones and tropical storms, we can actually be in the region beforehand because we know it's going to be a large one uh, and therefore we're on the ground ready to go. Uh, once on the ground, it's all really about data collection, trying to get an understanding of what's happened. So what's changed from before this cyclone or earthquake hit to now? So there's people affected, there's transport, there's infrastructure, there's things like water, sanitation, all this information is collecting uh, and again bringing together into products that can help inform decision making. So that's incredibly rapid, doesn't it, really? 24 to 48 hours sort of response time. So, so I'm interested in the volunteers then. How is it you, that people are able to just go out so quickly? Um, what, what's their role exactly in the process when they get there? Sure. So Map Action as an organisation only has around, uh, I think, between five and, and ten uh, full-time members of staff, and they are really just a core people that run the office. Everyone else that normally deploys is as a volunteer. Um, most are, have arrangements essentially with their employers. Uh, they've, you know, in part of signing up for Map Action, you need to check that your employer is happy with that. Uh, for example, in my circumstances, I've agreed my employer I'm allowed to take very short notice leave. Uh, our normal deployments are two weeks long, so we know how long they're going to be, and if the disaster required our assistance beyond that, we'd rotate. So we know roughly up front we need two weeks. So, for example, some employers just say, yeah, you can have that off, go and help, it's a good, it's a good deed. Other employers say, yeah, that's fine, you need to use up your, your holiday, essentially, to do it. Um, but by having... I think we've got 40 or 50 active people on the deployable lists. Um, if you only need two for a disaster, um, they are well aware some people might be in the middle of a family holiday, might have very important time on at work, uh, might simply not be able to get there till next week. You know, out of those numbers, two people are normally always available to say, yep, yeah, I've got nothing on next week, I can have my bag packed in a day, you know, and off we go. Uh, I'd like to understand what volunteers really do when they're out there, but it'd be nice to do that through through your own experience, because I know you've been on more than one deployment for Map Action. So if you could just tell us about uh, well, one of one example of, of where you've been and what it was like. Sure. Yeah, I think the best example would be uh, the Philippines uh, back at the end part of two thousand and thirteen, uh, where the typhoon Haiyan uh, came across a large section of the Philippines, causing wide wide uh, spread destruction. Um, I was on a second rotation of that emergency, uh, so people have been there for two weeks in, ahead of me. Okay, so um, it's, it's like a, a sort of shift system for volunteers. Yeah, so th that's just really the, the basis of people's employment. They knew they had to give someone, uh, employers, a timeline, so the general uh, sort of model deployment is two weeks, and as I said, if people are required longer than that, they'll be rotated, so you know, I'll come back and someone else will replace me. Or it may be that our services are completed within two weeks and, and the whole team withdraws. Mm -hmm. um, so, following, for, so following people being there for two weeks, uh, I flew into Manila, uh, the capital of the Philippines, uh, and t had an information meeting with the, with the heads there of the UN coordination people uh, and got up to speed uh, with, the, with the current information. Now, obviously, stuff was being shared outside of the country, but when you hit the ground, you know, there's always fresher information to collect. Uh, we were then flown down to near the uh, disaster area. The main city that it focused around was a place called Taklavan. And we were able to fly in eventually into what was Taklavan Airport, which was largely destroyed uh, during the storm. 
Um, once you're on the ground there, you immediately flew in. You could see what was an airport was, was basically being used as a landing strip uh, for small aircraft and helicopters. And I think that was your first sight at quite the level of destruction you were, you were kind of arriving in. Um, at, by two weeks in, there was already presence of other aid agencies, which you know is, is a good sign. There had been a very rapid response. There was the initial signs of you know shelters going up and stuff like that. So you saw people like UNHCR, um, Oxfam, Save the Children. You know they had come in as, by similar standby arrangements as Map Action, but deploying on a much larger scale. You know tents, tarpaulins, food, etc. So it was good to see after two weeks that kind of stuff was already happening. We were then taken to what's called the um, Coordination Centre. Uh, and that was basically the main hub for the response, humanitarian response. Uh, we then took our place within that. It's a very busy area. You've got people there from you know us doing you know, sort of some of the mapping and, and data side of things. You've got logistics people trying to work out how where people are going. You've got media. So it's a very busy place, but it has the coordination centre. So there you saw the full scale of the response. You know, so there were teams going out and doing assessments seeing how badly schools were damaged. At that point, there was still body recovery going on, which you know is unfortunate, but it's something that needs to happen to protect the, the sanitation of, of other, other amenities. Um, there were very early efforts looking at the communication networks. Um, some emergency communications had been set up by um, some other of the UN standby partners and set up some emergency SATCOMs to allow that coordination centre to have limited communications out to the outside world. Um, so... That was kind of the norm, you're straight into it. Um, we were sleeping in on what was a tennis court. Mm-hmm. Uh, the buildings we were using was a partly destroyed sports stadium. Right. Um, next to the tennis courts was the football pitch, and that was a helicopter landing site. So five o'clock in the morning, you know, you probably weren't going to be asleep because there's helicopters coming in and out. Um, it was high 30s, very high humidity. Um, it was actually cooler outside the tents than it was inside. So I mean, it was quite a warm environment. Um, but you, you're prepared for that. You know, the training does say you're not going to be going to a five-star hotel. Um, you, know, you, you are prepared and trained to, to accept and, and work in those environments. It is, it is tough, but you know, that's about being strict with yourself in you know, eating and drinking, etc. So then in the two-week period there, I mean, it, you know, it felt like a lifetime being there. Um, we were working, making map products, going out doing assessments. I travelled to other parts of the Philippines to check out you know, other response areas. Philippines being quite unique in the sense that it had come across a number of islands, so mm-hmm. the response was quite spread out. Um, and I flew across to the other side of the Philippines to a place called Rojas, and that was a lot less impact in regards to their buildings, but it had much larger damage on the crop front, so they were facing a different set of problems. Uh, so the sort of mapping products we were doing over there were all about crop um, harvest rates, whether there was going to be any harvest and kind of forecasting. Uh, whereas in Tacloban it was all about whether the roads were open, where you could land a helicopter, where the settlement camps were developing, how many people were settling in these temporary camps, did they have sanitation, did they have health, and it's bringing this information is all flying around, but it's bringing it into into you know unique products that allow someone to say right, I need to know what's going on over here. Well, there you go, there's, there's a picture. So you've got food security maps in one area, you've mm-hmm. got sort of logistics maps in another area. Um, who's using this information? Who's using the maps that you're producing while you're there? Um, so I mean, they're, they're shared quite widely uh, in the sense that they're there to help anyone that needs to make a decision. So if you were just a, uh, you know, a, a new arrival, we have just orienta- orientation maps, just you know, so you know where, where you are, where the airport is, uh, and that kind of stuff. So that really goes out to everyone. 
Then you may have other charities arriving who particularly work in shelter. They'll be taking your map, looking at the um, ITP camp locations and going off and using that. Um, if you look at the, you know, the wide range of products that Map Action create, um, they generally then go up towards being used by the senior UN officials and the government of the country. Now they'll be meeting you know, very, from, from the point of the emergency onwards on a regular basis, coordinating the response. Some things you know, are facilitated by the government, some things are facilitated by the UN. But to have that common picture, they're often relying on information products from people like Map Action to know or quite where is where is the affected population? You know, do we have a bigger, bigger problem in the east or the west? So to answer those questions at a very senior level, you need information products to, to be able to do that. So that's probably the most senior strategic level that our products go up to. But then, like I said, you've got the day-to-day use. People just need to know where they are, how to get to an IDP camp, how to get back to the airport in an emergency, where are things like helicopter landing zones. So uh, again, some of them are just practical, usable maps. Uh, and the good thing is we see them out and about we see them, you know, folded up in people's pockets, you know, scrunched up. It means they've been used and well used, which is a good sign. It means that what we're doing, you know, is a very crucial role. That's a fascinating insight into what, what Map Action volunteers get up to. Um, I'd also like to talk uh, about uh, web mapping, which I think a project you've been involved in, uh, which is, is being used by Map Action now. So what's that all about? Yeah, sure. Uh, so Map Action, um, as I said, is a charity, but um, it does bid for, you know, pots of money to, become, you know, make sure it's remains innovative and is delivering you know, efficient services. And a recent example of that, was, of that was the web mapping project, as it was called, and that was funded by Cisco, or the Cisco Foundation. Um, so that enabled, um, in this case, myself to actually do some work for Map Action, aside to my voluntary work, uh, and that was in building up a essentially web mapping tool set that would work without any internet. So using the Philippines as an example, again, uh, when we arrived there, very low communication, you know, all sort of things like uh, satellite links and all that had been flattened by huge waves, so barely any communication networks working. Uh, the gap was realised where we needed to share our information on a wider scale and in different formats. So the web mapping, which is now known as the Map Action Kiosk in the field, essentially is a Wi-Fi enabled um, system. It very basically runs off a quite powerful laptop with a quite powerful Wi-Fi router, and effectively it shares Map Action data out in various formats. If you had an iPad, laptop, anything with Wi-Fi, or we probably set up one of our uh, laptops so you come and use them, you'd you'd arrive at a quite simple front screen, which was, you know, what would you like to do? We've got some PDF maps of the paper maps that we've created. We've got some interactive mapping if you want to zoom in, zoom out, make your own areas, make your own PDFs and walk away with them. It frees us up to carry on working on the tasks we're doing, which may well be creating more and more content and more and more data. And also leaves a little bit of self-service in there, so people can come in anytime they want, collect PDF maps. They can print a hundred copies if they want. You know, it's it's fine for them to do that. But really, our information products are there to help people, and the further and wider we can spread those, the greater the benefit. So it is a system by which people uh, kind of have easier access to your your maps and and can perhaps uh, customize them slightly for their own needs on the ground, um, and. I think th- this has been used by Map Action already. So, ha- how has it changed Map Action's uh, operations then? Um, I think it's it was never designed to be a burden. That's something we're very careful of doing. Um, so, it sits on top of our existing map production processes. Uh, and what the benefit of some, since we've seen it in the field, both during testing and now in real emergencies, is it just gets those information products out there quicker and to a wider audience.
you can find more information about map action at mapaction.org uh, if you're interested in uh, contributing your map whiz skills or you just want to know more about the organization now anna plajajski uh, from ucl chemistry is our next guest uh, and she's talked to rob levy about the future of energy and what happens when you put the future of energy in an actual field in glastonbury yeah that's right i work on hydrogen storage materials Okay, do you want to tell us what that is and what that means? What, what, what's a fuel cell, first of all? So, um, a hydrogen fuel cell um, is an uh, energy-producing device um, powered by hydrogen. Um, and the only output of a hydrogen fuel cell is um, water vapour and okay. heat. Okay, so it's the kind of thing that would replace, what, a battery? How, how, what, what's it replacing? You input your hydrogen as a gas, um, and that hydrogen hits um, an electrode. Um, and on this electrode you have small particles of platinum and those platinum particles are particularly good at um, drawing each of the two hydrogen atoms away from each other because a hydrogen molecule as it exists in a gas is H2. Yeah, I remember my GCSE chemistry. Right, so the platinum makes it um, two protons which are both H and two electrons. Um, and then from this um, electrode um, the protons are able to travel through a membrane in the fuel cell um, and this membrane is insulating to electrons so if you allow them to flow around an external circuit um, those electrons can be harnessed as electricity electrical energy um, on the other side of the fuel cell you've got another electrode um, where these electrons and the protons that have gone through the membrane recombine um, and they recombine with oxygen which you just find in the air um, to make h2o water and that's your output so are you, are you having to power this whole process? The electrodes are, are plugged into something, are they? Or, or does it just happen chemically? Yeah, so it's a chemical, uh, electrochemical reaction. Wow, that seems almost too good to be true. So you, you just start with hydrogen, mm -hmm. and you just end with water? Yes, and a bit of heat. And a bit of heat, and you can generate electricity? Yep. Okay, and are you able to generate the sorts of electricity that would be like a, like a mains power supply? For you? Yeah, absolutely. So... Um, Hydrogen fuel cells at the moment, you would just be able to plug in your normal appliances to, with a bit of electrical tweaking of the current. So we, we live in some kind of utopia future where we've got clean energy and, and, it, and it's available, because hydrogen is quite, there's a lot of it, right? Hydrogen right, is hydrogen around. is the most abundant element in the universe. So we've got an abundant fuel source, mm -hmm. clean energy. Yep. So why are there no why why are we not powering this building, for example, with with a hydrogen fuel cell? Yeah. So the point that we've just raised is one of the reasons behind that, and that's to do with hydrogen production. So although hydrogen is the most abundant element in the element in the universe, um, it's always tied up on Earth in other compounds. So H two O, water, methane, and hydrocarbons all have hydrogen in them, but they're always tied up in with these other compounds. So. In order to use hydrogen in a fuel cell, you'd need to release it from those compounds in some way. Um, and at the moment, 95% um, of the hydrogen produced at the moment is from fossil fuels in processes called methane reforming, which takes natural gas, methane, um, and creates hydrogen, but of course it uses fossil fuels. Ah, okay. So the clean energy source actually starts from the same dirty energy source that we have always At the made. moment it does, yeah. There are alternatives. Um, you can produce hydrogen in actually the reverse of a fuel cell, which is called an electrolyzer. So you input water um, and you input electrical energy and the very similar device splits that water into hydrogen and oxygen. 
Okay, presumably the problem being that the electrolyzer has to be more efficient than the fuel cell, otherwise you're putting in more electricity than you're getting. Absolutely, yeah. So one of the big questions is, why, why use hydrogen at all? Why not just use the electrical energy that you're putting into the electrolyzer straight into your whatever you want to power? Um, but it's also a question of um, where you're producing that power. So, for example, if you wanted to, if you've got your offshore wind farm, that electrical energy is created a long way away from where you want to charge your iPhone. So you need a way to store that energy and transport that energy, and hydrogen is a great way of doing that. Okay, so I guess this brings us to the topic of the podcast, which is in the field. Uh, one very obvious use for hydrogen fuel cells is, is powering cars, which at the moment is done in a very dirty way. Um, I don't see many hydrogen cars on the roads, but you say that the fuel cell is, is already up and running. So what, what are we waiting for for that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, actually, the first thing to say is that there are hydrogen fuel cells on the roads. Um, London okay. has eight hydrogen fuel cell buses, the RV1, um, which is up and running in London. You can get on one today. No way! Um, China recently started, just recently released um, a hydrogen fuel cell tram as well. So, um, yeah, there are hydrogen fuel cells on the roads, but you're right, they're not particularly widespread. So what, what is it that we're, we must be waiting for some, is it a technological leap that we're looking for? Well, a lot of it is a kind of chicken and egg situation between the car manufacturers and the infrastructure. So infrastructure is a huge problem for hydrogen because at the moment there's petrol everywhere you can drive a few miles, fill up at your convenience, whereas that isn't the case for hydrogen. So the move by the hydrogen car market has kind of been, we're going to start this, we're going to make these hydrogen cars viable and commercial and then hopefully the governments will then follow suit and sort out the infrastructure problem. Yeah. But, but until someone moves, there's no real way of getting so, the ball rolling. So we would need like petrol stations, but hydrogen stations where you've got some kind of... And I assume there are none of those in the UK at the moment. Um, well, one has just been built in Swindon. So Swindon? I um, <laughs> so as long as your journey is starting or ending in Absolutely, Swindon. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and there's a couple more dotted around the UK, I think. Um, there's some in California. Um, and Japan is the other big player in hydrogen. One of the other problems which also relates to cars is the price of fuel cells. Um, and fuel cells currently contain very expensive platinum catalysts. Um, and before fuel cells can really become kind of economically viable, those platinum catalysts either have to become much smaller, so nanotechnology becomes involved there, um, or just alternative materials altogether. Yeah, because am I right in thinking that platinum is more expensive than gold? Oh, yeah. Tricky. It's very expensive. Although there are gold catalysts in things, I think. so. That, that Yeah, gold can be used exist. as a catalyst, absolutely, yeah. Um, but for this particular reaction, platinum is very catalytically active. Okay, so. okay. So are there any other reasons why, any other things we're waiting for for the hydrogen fuel cell? Yeah, so one of them is um, safety concerns and actual safety. So public perception of hydrogen has been quite hostile traditionally. Um, is the, why is that? Um, the Hindenburg explosion is the sort of classic um, centre of the hysteria surrounding hydrogen this image of this huge balloon exploding. Um, but actually, the flames that you see in that um, classic photo are actually, I think, like the resins used on the walls of the balloon and stuff. So there's more than meets the eye. However, unless you look into it... Yeah, um, yeah. looks like hydrogen is very explosive. So what right. do you say to the, the public person who says, I don't want can canisters of explosive gas? Yeah, so hydrogen is very explosive. Um, but in the case of a car, um, 
if you have a hydrogen gas tank in your car, actually it's a lot safer than having a petrol-powered car, um, a tank of petrol in your car. How come? Um, and the reasons are that because hydrogen is a gas and it's a very light gas, if you were to have a rupture in your hydrogen gas tank um, and that were to ignite, um, then that hydrogen flame would just flare completely upwards. Um, and in that case, doesn't really burn the car. Like, it might get a bit warm, but you'd have time to get out or whatever. Um, with a petrol-powered car, petrol is a liquid, so it would sink underneath the car, and it's also very volatile, so burning petrol would burn the car from underneath. Yeah, okay, so you, so that's why kind of spills of petrol on the road, you've got petrol on the road, which is burning, it's very dangerous. Absolutely. And you ignite other cars, whereas... I rather like the idea of driving around in a car with a kind of plume of <laughs> hydrogen flame spurting out the back. Sounds quite Probably good. wouldn't recommend that, but in theory you could do it. <laughs> so the topic of the podcast is in the field, and am I right in thinking that you've literally been in a field? Yeah, recently? it's very topical, um, because I'm involved with a, um, a group from UCL called UCL, um, and they're based in the chemical engineering department here at UCL. Um, and our main aim um, is to... Uh, engage with the public about hydrogen and hydrogen fuel cells um, and we do that by powering events around the country um, we've got a hydrogen fuel cell stack um, which we've um, built up ourselves um, as a team and we take that stack around to festivals um, and events in order to engage with the public and teach them a bit more about how hydrogen works Great, and what are you able to power at these festivals? What, what do you run? So in 2014 we went to Glastonbury and we powered a mobile phone charging station. Um, so at any one time we had about 100 mobile phones charging um, purely off our clean hydrogen energy. Amazing, and how many, were you kind of surrounded by enormous hydrogen tanks to make that work? How did you keep your hydrogen and how, where did you get your hydrogen from? So we um, currently store our hydrogen in gas tanks, um, which is the most common form of storing hydrogen. The hydrogen cars coming out next year have all got, this year rather, have all got gas tanks in them in order to store the hydrogen. Um, but gas tanks aren't actually the best way of storing hydrogen. They're pretty heavy, are they? Gas tanks They're pretty heavy. Um, there's high pressure. You have to compress hydrogen to high pressures in order to get them in um, for a su- to a suitable volume that you could carry it around reasonably. Yeah. Um, this compression uses up a bit of energy, um, so it makes it a slightly less sustainable um, way of storing um, and also compressed gases um, do have safety issues around them mm-hmm. um, so although that was our choice because that's the best way for us to store hydrogen in a field at Glastonbury um, there are alternative ways of storing hydrogen um, so I've mentioned as a gas you can also store it as a liquid um, and liquid hydrogen uh, was used on the space shuttle program huh. um, to power things but it's a pretty high-tech way of doing it. Um, you have to cool hydrogen down to minus 253 degrees Celsius <laughs> to get it into a liquid in the first place. Right. Um, and that takes a lot of energy. That takes off about 40% of the energy stored in the hydrogen in the first place to cool it down. Um, and cryogenic gas cylinders are a lot heavier than normal gas cylinders because you have to have huge amounts of insulation and safety things as well. So yeah. liquid hydrogen is sort of for space only probably (laughs) (laughs) and can you once you get it down to that cold does it kind of stay a liquid as long as you keep it insulated well that's interesting per day you get about three percent of the hydrogen boiling off okay so if you just left it for a few days outside you would have less hydrogen when you returned to it than you did initially so it sounds like liquid hydrogen is not really the way forward not particularly not particularly got any other options um as solids 
Uh-huh. Um, so my research actually is on solid state hydrogen storage. Um, and this is surrounding, you know how before I said hydrogen is mixed up in all these different compounds on Earth? Yeah. We need to get it like out. Like in methane. And right. Yeah. One way of doing that is storing is to store hydrogen as a solid um, in compounds called hydrides. Um, and here hydrogen is um, tied up with generally metals, um, sort of magnesium, also boron and nitrogen um, elements like that. Um, and to release the hydrogen, all you have to do is heat it up a small amount, um, generally to around 100 degrees Celsius. Um, at room temperature, it's completely inert. You can handle it, unlike liquid hydrogen or get gas hydrogen. It's much easier to handle. So it's just a, it's like a lump of something. Right, exactly. A shiny thing or a what? Um, gem- yeah. A lump of shiny something. Shiny or, yeah, white powder. Ah, okay, okay. Um, You can compress it into pellets or whatever shape you want. Um, So one of the good things about hydrogen storage in a solid is that you don't need these gas tanks. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you wanted to incorporate it in your car, you could have any shape of tank to hold that solid. So you could incorporate it in between other bits of your engine or bits of your Yeah, okay, so you would just kind of plug in a big boron hydride pellet or whatever and that would be your so I mean presumably this raises the same problem as, as all the other things which is how do you get the hydrogen into that form in the first place and does that take more energy than you get out at the end yeah so one of the big problems with solid state hydrogen storage is producing the materials because in general the best ones aren't can't be found naturally so you yeah. couldn't just mine them out of the ground okay. um, so there's a chemical process required there um, also once you've got your hydrogen out um, some of them are not easily reversible, so you'd have to remove it from the car and regenerate it off-board. So there's another chemical process there. Oh, I see. Yeah, you can't just rehydrate your your boron. Or no, not is. easily. Okay. Um, okay. And so one of the, the big problems with hydrogen storage as a solid is sort of a public perception issue because if you're used to just filling up your car with a nozzle with liquid or gas, that's a lot easier to kind of change to um, than it is to try and mess around with putting solids in your car, taking solids out. Mm. Um, and again, there's an infrastructure issue. Okay, so when, when should we expect hydrogen cars? Well, there's hydrogen cars coming out on the road this year. Um, Toyota, Honda and Hyundai have all re- are all planning to release their hydrogen cars in 2015. Wow, amazing. So we should be seeing, presumably, hydrogen cars and hydrogen petrol stations or hydrogen stations as we're calling them (laughs) pretty soon you think yeah fingers crossed although as I say the infrastructure problem is still yet to be realised but there are other technologies that you can use hydrogen fuel cells for aside from sort of the everyday man's car Um, for example that's why the buses are really good because that's why it's been implemented in buses first is because buses travel many many miles in a day but they always return to the same depot so you only need one refuelling station for all of those miles travelled. Um, the same can be said for um, forklift trucks as well. They travel many, many miles within um, the warehouse. warehouse yeah. Yeah. Um, but actually, they only need one refuelling depot. So those yeah. are the sorts of applications where you're seeing the first implementation of hydrogen. So if our listeners are in London and they want to drive a, they want to ride on a hydrogen-powered bus, it's the, the RV1. The RV1 that goes from Covent Garden to Tower Gateway. Right, so east of the city. 
Mm-hmm. Basically, so there you go, listeners. If you want to uh, ride a hydrogen-powered bus, the RV one is to the city, yeah. and it's just the price of a normal Oyster card. Right? Oh, I assume right? so. It's not yeah. like a special tourist bus or anything. No, it's just I don't a normal think so. Bus. Yeah, a normal bus. Amazing. Well, there you go. Uh, we'll be seeing hydrogen uh, powering things in the field in a city near you soon. I'm going to put a link to uh, Anna's work in the show notes because her surname has a really uh, impressive collection of uh, vowels and consonants. Uh, now, I hope this episode has encouraged you to go out into the field, or into a field, or at least walk down the street, enjoy the joys of spring, and not listen to it on headphones in studio as I am currently. Um, our experts in their particular fields were Anna Plajewski. Uh, before that, you heard Matt Pennells, and at the top of the show was Daniel Raven Ellison. Um, the Global Lab, this episode was put together by Thomas Evans, Rob Levy, and myself, Martin Zoltz Orsbrick. If you enjoyed the show, why not go to theglobalab.com, which is a link to our SoundCloud page, which has all of our past episodes. Uh, you can go on those. You can share them with your friends on Facebook, on Twitter, um, and you can comment on particular bits of the SoundCloud feed, so you can... You can uh, comment on that bit where I did that really good joke about a field a few minutes ago Uh, and please do tell us what you think of the episodes Uh, give us ideas for new themes that you'd like to hear or guests you'd like us to have on Uh, we are on Twitter at The Global Lab Uh, I am on Twitter at Sociable Physics or you can email us at theglobalab at gmail.com and we will be back in May with a brand new episode 